Hi there, and welcome to the second episode of It's Always Saturn, the podcast from Raven Rabbit Ram. I'm Christina. I'm your host. I'm also the editor of Raven Rabbit Ram. In today's podcast, I interview artist and activist Richard Metz. His work can be found on our website at www.ravenrabbitram.com, as well as his website, www.mrimster.com. Metz, M-E-T-Z, dot com. If you're interested in purchasing his book, email us at parisofharrisburg at gmail.com and we'd be happy to get you his Venmo information. I really enjoyed this interview. I love talking to someone who is both realistic about the challenges we face and the reality of what's coming toward us with climate change, but also committed and personally invested in making a difference. Richard both works as an artist and then as a practical human being, dealing with his township, dealing with his local community to work toward a better future for the planet. I love talking to him about books. I'm going to be reading Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, one of the books that he recommends. Uh, We talked a little bit about Petter Hanka, and I said, I love him. That's something I'd like to clarify. I wasn't really referring to the person. I really loved his book, Sorrow Beyond Dreams. So in case anyone's really geeked out about Petr Hanka, don't worry. We're not best friends or anything. One other thing that I want to mention is that, again, I ended this podcast pretty abruptly. I have to get better at recording the part where we say thank you and goodbye. But in any case, thank you to Richard. A million thank yous. This was a great, great episode. Also, at the end, he asked me a question, which I didn't want to end the podcast with. So I'm just going to answer it again here at the top. He asked why we were called Raven Rabbit Ram. And we do have a blog article that I wrote about the name. It is essentially a reference to a number of different trinities, the past, present, future, the where, what, when. These are three things that refer to me specifically. So Raven represents Baltimore, Edgar Allan Poe. If you're not familiar with Baltimore, you've probably at least heard of the football team. The city is really, really proud of our relationship to Edgar Allan Poe. And that is where I'm originally from. Rabbit is the lunar zodiac year that I was born in. And Ram represents Aries, the western zodiac sign that I was born under. Originally, we did have the idea to have all of the contributors identify themselves in that way. So, for instance, you could be river, monkey, goat. But we immediately ran into a problem because we had a couple writers who were born in years of rats who weren't about that. So we just kind of left it as the name of the website and left it at that. But you can imagine how thrilled we were to meet this artist who has such a close affiliation to the Corvid bird family that ravens are a part of. So without any further ado, thank you so, so much for listening. Thank you to Richard for being a part of our podcast and for sharing his beautiful art with us. Let's get started. It's always Saturn. Well, how are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. It's 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 a little warm, but, uh, you know, I'm in the lower level here. It is. It is very, very hot where I am, too. We were actually just in uh, Harrisburg for, there was like a uh, climate convergence right along the river there. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't yeah. hear about that. Yeah, yeah, it was, it, was, it was interesting. There were a lot of different groups. It was good. It was good. 
I've been to some, you know, demonstrations at the Capitol, but they're usually pretty small in number, just local people. So that's that's cool that there is a big group. Yeah, I mean, it was it was people. It was groups from all over Pennsylvania or all over sort of yeah parts of Pennsylvania. It wasn't huge, but it was very interesting. Uh, just different perspectives on you know kind of environmental stuff that uh, I'm interested in. So it was good. I that was one of my questions for you was. Well, I just wrote climate change, but <laughs> re- reading your artists, your statement and looking through your other work on your website, I wanted to ask you about your stance on climate change. And I was really interested in the question that you were asking about the purpose of art. I studied anthropology in undergrad, and it was always that question of, well, but what is the point? And the answer was often edifying conversation, which you know, we need to do more than that right now. Yeah, so, yeah. so I love exploring that idea of what is the purpose and how things like art get us closer to what we need to do. Hmm. Well, um, as I, as I said, I mean, uh, in the artist statement, I don't think that art, it can have a necessarily direct effect on climate change per se, in any large way. The issues are so large in terms of corporate power and state power and mass consumption of fossil fuels and, uh, you know, vehicles and transportation and fracking. I mean, Pennsylvania is pretty intense with that. So art can do the longer, smaller things in terms of creating some awareness of the beauty of nature, the importance of nature, creating some sense of belonging in terms of like a community. And, and, that, and that would be in terms of like for artists belonging to a sense of community. And obviously there's also smaller issues like using non-toxic art supplies and that kind of thing that are kind of fairly direct uh, and issues about personal lifestyle that involve like your climate footprint and that kind of thing, your energy usage. There's different kinds of work. And I mean, I've done different things involving parades, you know, and costumes and that kind of artwork. Uh, we've certainly made lots of signs for different things. You know, I've, I've kind of, even in the work that I do outside in the woods, painting on trees and that kind of thing with non-toxic things so that the art just sort of fades away. I think these are really kind of beautiful statements, but the harder work, for example, going to a board of commissioners meeting last night and having to confront some of the commissioners about their lack of concern for climate change, you know, and getting kind of pushback and, you know, why are you always, you know, doing this, Richard, that kind of thing. You know, uh, there's kind of awkward things that, and I'm sure that could be done in a more artful way. But there is that kind of law and policy issues that I believe are really important to confront climate change. If I'm working with people on 
reduce, you know, kind of getting the education out about reducing pesticides on lawns, for example, or the whole work I'm doing with 35 different townships now to ban single-use plastic bags. That's so different than art. You know, for me, the art is, as I said, like establishing this deep connection in nature. And the art in some way is a way that I do some communication, both to other people and to nature and that kind of thing. So the conclusion and the question that I raised in my artist statement was that it's a really big issue right now, because suppose by the end of the century, there's massive extinctions in terms of all the scientists predicting that. What is the value of the work we're doing now in terms of art, in terms of long lastingness? What does that matter? And so these are not answerable questions. It's almost like each person, it's almost like asking the questions is really important to me and to other people. Uh, and to try and figure out how maybe to not take ourselves too seriously as well. And, you know, I, I think it's more in the immediacy. People seem to get something from my work and it's, you know, they can kind of create a connection with nature or with with the work or there's a sense of an aesthetic feeling that's really good. And I think that that's important to have that sense of beauty in life. But all the beauty in the world that's been created hasn't stopped ExxonMobil, you know, <laughs> from <laughs> denying climate change and producing more and more fossil fuels. So that's where we are. That's where I am now. It's an essential part of how I live personally as an artist and as a human being, but I don't have any uh, grand pronouncements that it's going to change the course right now. Mm -hmm. I think that's really beautiful. I was recently listening to a podcast where they were talking about a climate activist who committed suicide and mm. um, just how draining this work can be so I really love that you're you're balancing doing the hard work and I appreciate that you're doing the hard work because I think it's something that a lot of people talk about obviously we're all concerned about climate change it's really refreshing to hear these really actionable concrete steps that you can take that are being taken but I love that there's that balance that is an excellent answer to the despair that you can confront when you're thinking about these things and working with them day after day, head on. That is a good point, because each week there are points where I feel that despair. I'm not doing enough. Nothing I do is going to change anything. The more you read, the more difficult or painful it is. But yes, it is true that that experience in nature, the joy of doing artwork, is kind of rejuvenating in that way to me. And I think the hardest thing is to hold those things together, the beauty and the horror. I mean, there's no plan. Nobody tells you how to do that. Maybe Buddhism does. I don't know. I'm not really into that so much. I'm 
curious, but uh, I don't know exactly how you hold both of those things, except just to feel them and have people to talk to about it, you know. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned Buddhism, because I was thinking about your tree art and the way that it does fade away and reminded me of mandalas. So I was going to ask if you had any, if that was a connection for you um, in creating something that's necessarily ephemeral like that. It's funny because I'm just, uh, I'm looking more into mandalas right now. I actually just picked up a book this morning about it and was reading more about it in terms of my own kind of personal quests and some, you know, thoughts that a friend of mine was talking about. But no, I, I think the artwork in terms of tree work, the idea would be that art would be a living thing that it would be born, it would live, and then it would fade away. And that it's, you know, because so much of the time, for so many artists, it's it's about a, a struggle against decay. You know, how do I preserve my work? What, you know, what colors last forever? What paints last forever? And I didn't, I wanted to say, let nature win in those in those works i i like that i mean it can be it's challenging because the reality of that is that if i did a tree painting thing in july and there was some opening in september i'd have to go back and touch up everything because sometimes if there was a a tough summer you know everything would have faded i feel i feel good about that work in that it, it does fade away you know i have photographs but it's not it's not a consumer item it's not something that I have here. Like now I'm doing a lot more painting and yet now storage is a problem again. And what am I going to do with these things? And, you know, uh, how do I not have so much stuff? Because, you know, we're this consumer society. And the last thing I want to do is just fill it full of stuff. I, I, I think that's a, uh, that's a concern. Do you work with digital media at all to... I don't. I don't. I mean, I, you know, I taught some of that when I was teaching. I taught Photoshop every year and would teach kids how to use that. And we would have tablets and people would, you know, kind of work in Photoshop in that way. But uh, it didn't feel connected to me personally. I, I know lots of illustrators do it and do wonderful work. And it's so easy to change, you know, in terms of layers. But it's just not uh, the connection that I need with the paper and my brain. And that kind of, you know, if I'm mixing up, for example, in some of the works, I'll just mix up soil with gum Arabic, you know, and I can use that as a pigment. Or it's like getting my hands dirty, you know, in, in some way. Or in some way, just being outside for five or six hours painting I'm not going to really be outside on my tablet for five or six hours. But, you know, I, I, I think that it certainly would be easier because then it's, you can send it off to people right away. I just feel like uh, there's something of the visceral quality of the paint on paper that's missing. But, you know, that's just my own kind of construction of yeah. meaning. <laughs> I, I feel that because I, in school, I went to school for writing and publishing. So there was always this conversation about 
you know, publishing books mm-hmm. digitally. And I think I kind of come as a consumer. My feeling is that I, if it's a book that I know I'm going to keep and that I, I want to physically have, then I get mm-hmm. a physical copy. But if it's a book that I just am just going to read and probably never think about again, mm-hmm. I'll download it. But as a writer, it's, it's very hard for me to imagine writing a whole book and envisioning it as anything other than a book on paper. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, I, mean, wait, I did, um, I did publish, well, self-publish one little book. It's uh-huh. this, the, a murder of crows <laughs> and it's, and it's drawings and poems basically kind of in my investigations, I guess in the early part of COVID, I just started to get very involved with crows and their sort of intelligence and the sort of the dark mythology around them. And and I had been taking writing classes for years and I just decided, you know, let me try and combine these together. And it was a lot of work, but it was, it's good to have like the object rather than sort of the digital uh, equivalent of it. Although I do prefer with creative writing, just writing directly on the computer or on a tablet, just because I don't want to transfer everything from handwriting over. Uh, and, and I love the ease of like editing, obviously on the computer rather than by hand, but you know, I'm thinking about it. I, I've been trying to think, should I get a fountain pen? <laughs> that's, a, that's a question I've been having lately. You know, I just got a, a tablet thing I can show you. It's where my notes are, but it's, okay. um, it's not backlit. So you can, it doesn't bother your eyes to write oh, that's on it, good. but it'll convert your cursive <laughs> or whatever, however your handwriting comes out. It can right. convert it to text, which is nice. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. For me, it's like, I have so many notebooks laying around. So I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, I can really condense that because it just lets you open a new file. So I can do that. But it's it's nice that it converts it because my handwriting is not always the cleanest. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that it could, you know, read handwriting because mine can be kind of challenging as well. Yeah. The problems I found is if I'm sketching and then I write around it, then it doesn't know where to what order to put the words in Mm -hmm. so then Mm -hmm. then I just have to rewrite it retype it yeah I mean I I enjoyed a lot of creative writing actually did a whole like year and a half of uh radio dramas with a with a friend of mine uh that were done at the Germantown uh radio station they have a like a, a low wattage radio station and we once a month we would do these things but I I really got into writing and I liked the deadlines I kind of need deadlines because it, there was there was so much that I couldn't say with drawing and painting and I could say that with with writing and and even describing something if I could describe it 10 different ways it was just, it was so interesting to me to express that though all those other sides of myself that I hadn't for years because I was just involved with drawing and painting and that kind of thing. So I, it was like the other side of my brain and it was, it was wonderful. It was fun. You know, I think uh, eventually the other person couldn't do it anymore and we, we stopped doing it, but uh, I'm slowly starting to get back into it. So that's, 
that's nice. I would love to read some of that. Are there recordings of the radio yeah, plays? Yeah, yeah. I will send a link to those. There's some on uh, Podomatic and then there's some on Mixcloud. Awesome. Well, yeah. We'll put links to it in the, in the okay. show notes so people can yeah. check it out. Yeah. I see that you have stereo behind you. What's your favorite? Do you like to work with music in the background? And I, so what's I your do. favorite? I really like many different kinds of music. Today and this morning, I was listening to more classical music, more uh, contemporary choral music. I think I, I kind of have certain go-to things like Kate Bush or the Cocteau Twins and, you know, Thelonious Monk and uh, Debussy and, uh, you know, certain kind of more ethereal sort of things, kind of things that I kind of gravitate to. But oftentimes when I'm outside working, if I'm not just listening to the nature sounds, if they're not that intense, I'll I'll stream. There's a WQXR is a station in New York City, and they have uh, streaming services, and they have one called New Sounds. So it's very kind of contemporary, strange kind of classical and avant-garde stuff. And that's kind of what I mostly like to listen to. It, you know, it's just challenging. It's always interesting to me. I have a lot of tapes. <laughs> I have a lot of cassettes and tapes here of, uh, of uh, older music, like Tom Waits that I love or other things like that. Um, I love Tom Waits. Oh my gosh. Yes. So, you know, there's just, I, I think it's really interesting to put myself in those head spaces. I was just listening to klezmer music yesterday when I was working, you know, so there's all, you know, I, I think anything that's kind of a little bit challenging and uh, unusual, I'm kind of interested in. <laughs> what do you think of Kate Bush's Renaissance lately? Have you heard about I think it's so funny. <laughs> mm. I mean, Stranger Things is really fun. And uh, it kind of got me into just, oh, you know, let me listen to all of her stuff again. And, oh, let me listen to, uh, let me look at, I had never seen the documentaries on her on uh, on YouTube. And so, oh, oh, that's really interesting. And, oh, look, I didn't even really, I kind of stopped listening to her stuff, you know, after the sensual world or whatever. And so it's interesting to kind of, Oh, let me try some of the later things. That's interesting, you know, and, and I and I play some music. So sometimes I try and play to some of her music and that sort of thing. So. Oh, wow. So you're you're using all the all the different art forms you can with writing and painting and playing music. Yeah, well. yeah. I mean I, I, I play with people once a month and I play like flute and clarinet and uh sing a bit and it's uh it's immediately emotionally fulfilling in a very kind of intense way. I'm not, I'm very much an amateur, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's very, very enjoyable. We get to a place where we're someplace all together and it's, uh, it's, it's very, very interesting. When, when you're working outside, how do you sort of time that with the light and with your own energy? I've been finding since I've started working entirely for myself how much better I can do how much more productive I can be by just paying attention to my own natural rhythms hmm. and you know when I'm most alert and I wonder how that works with art and nature because your natural rhythm has to somehow sync up with what's going on outside for that to work 
you know, when I was younger, I was very much a night person. And I love that sense of working at night when nobody else was around. I guess now kind of going outside, I mean, it, it really varies by the weather. So now, you know, it's kind of warm and I'll wait for it to be not quite so warm. And if I can get out by nine, I can work until about two or three. And I mean, the first half hour is just sitting there, you know, and just kind of letting things settle. I find that if I, it's all kind of about temperature in some way for me, and in the sense that it's unfortunate that I will stop working outside, you know, in mid-November or something, it will just become too cold or whatever. But if I, if I can get outside early enough, my body will adjust to getting warmer, you know, and so it's, it's not such a big deal if if I'm in the shade. I think it's good when I'm in my studio, in my home, you know, I can work for, I'll work for like three hour blocks, but if I'm outside, I I, I know I'm going to just, I don't want to leave without having something firmly established, not necessarily finished. So I, there's more impetus to just stay there. When I had a studio outside the house, I would just, the point was to go. And then I, what, what would I do there? I would just work there, but it's a little easier to get to bounce around when you're in your own home because there's all these things to do and that sort of thing. (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) but yeah, I, I I do like, I do find working outside now that I can work for much longer than normal. And then I'll just go home and sleep. (laughs) It's the same sort of dichotomy everyone's been experiencing with remote work because of COVID, (laughs) except in your case, instead of the office, it's, it's outside, but yeah, but yeah, it is much, much easier to get distracted when you're in your house. And there's oh, yeah. Yeah. so many things that you can do. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about your work and where you are, Philadelphia or outside of Philadelphia. And one of our writers commented after he was writing a review of this show, The Mayor of, or Mayor of Easttown, which was oh, yeah. Yeah. set in yeah. Delco. Yeah. And um, his point was that Every every TV show kind of makes Pennsylvania look like the dreariest, just grayest, dullest <laughs> place. And if you actually live here, like I, I grew up in Chester County. Okay. Now I live in Central PA, but it, mm-hmm. everywhere I've lived here, it's been just lush and green and like mm-hmm. just a beautiful place. And and as as you said, it's it's not mountains. It's not anything you know in, incredibly out of the ordinary or overwhelming, but it's the nature here is is lovely. I was wondering your thoughts on that and how how people tend to think of this area versus the reality of it, especially Philadelphia area. That's that's a very challenging question. <laughs> because I don't like I was sort of dancing around that in my artist statement because I don't exactly understand it. Like it's almost like um it's very easy go to another place because you see how different it is i love going to the southwest i've been there a few times not that many but it's it's like the opposite of this and i can appreciate it and it's just so startling and exciting and you know the northwest up in seattle has this real different kind of cool mountainous feel and 
and kind of going up to Maine has this other kind of crisp kind of coastal feel. And whereas here, it's like when you live someplace your whole life, I recognize that I don't have distance with it. It's, it certainly is very comfortable. When I talk to my sister, she moved out to Ohio and it's very flat. And she misses all the hills here. There's certainly lots of hills here. But I think that's partly why I'm, I've been so, I've written lots of things about development. Because when I see out in Montgomery County or, when, you know, I'm out in Chester County or Bucks County, and I see more and more development, and I see the beautiful countryside getting eaten up by these developments, it's just kind of breaks my heart because there is something of the the sort of the quality of the area and there's lots of farms and that kind of thing and it's it's just I I hate to see that that kind of space being lost. I think that there's there's lots of good and bad things here. There's this rampant development. When I was teaching I did research and you know this area around Philadelphia is one of the highest salaried teacher places. And that was like a very interesting thing because there certainly is lots of money here. Like, I don't even know where people get all this money. You know, it's just kind of crazy. Were you teaching at secondary school level? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the, at the high school level, I I taught at Abington high school for about 30 years. So, uh, and that was kind of wonderful in parts. It was very challenging and overwhelming, but I grew up in Abington, so it was ironic or strange that I was back there teaching, you know, through no plan or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's almost like I knew I wanted to leave this area when I was younger, and I never made it. Like, I would take vacations, but I was, you know, you could kind of, your friends and family kind of kind of hold on to you. You know, in in a sense, like New York was always too fast and crazy and Philadelphia always felt just right to me in terms of the pace. And now I I like kind of certain like slower aspects to things because they give me time to think about things. This area where I live now, which is like just outside the city, it's I mean, I'm trying to do work to protect the trees that people keep wanting to cut down. But it's much more beautiful at night. There's a sense of mystery here that isn't there in the day. Uh, And I've done some paintings at night, which are kind of fun because there's just there's a kind of poetry which isn't here in certain kind of sort of built up developments. And I think that there's just more and more like when you. It's like it's weird. We've been here for 20 years and we're starting to get to know all the people here. It's like the more you live in one place, the more you start to understand it. When I go to the board of commissioners meetings and I hear about all these other little things, you realize how much is happening in your little town that you had no clue about. And I find that kind of interesting, you know, that there's um, that there are ways where, you know, there is a way you can see where things get done. And, you know, it's it's. Um, I find it kind of somewhat manageable, although I think probably we will move just inside the city in a few years. I do do think people, I started working as a poll worker a few years ago. 
which is really terrific. I just, I just really, really like it. And what I like is that people were, when I lived in the city, I criticized the suburbs. And now the people in the city, when they criticize the suburbs, I say, well, wait a minute. And the one thing I thought was interesting was in a lot of these elections, the suburban communities kind of went big now kind of democratic and they're like this very important voting block. So people shouldn't diss it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder generationally, do you think that's a shift? When I was reading your artist bio, I think this is something that has shifted for me. I would go so far as to say our whole culture has kind of changed in our obsession with generations Mm -hmm. and these factions that we have. Um, where it's like parents versus their children essentially Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm I'm sure it's because with the internet time has sped everything up so much so that there are these noticeable differences whereas before you know you could go hundreds of years if not thousands where Mm -hmm. one generation is more or less the same as the last in terms of how they're going to look at the world but I think that like when you mentioned the suburbs sort of changing I wonder how much I find this weird generational friction to be so strange because I mean, I'm, I'm a millennial. I was Mm -hmm. raised by baby boomers. My parents Mm -hmm. were born in the late Mm fifties. And so it's interesting because all of these values that we have, I mean, that's who taught them to us. (laughs) Right, 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 right. So do you feel that sort of disconnect? Like, especially thinking about, where you are in the suburbs and well things are things are a little different I mean obviously I didn't know it at the time but for me growing up in the sort of 70s or whatever we were sort of an early generation that seemed to want to have nothing to do with their parents and and I realized that my brother was the same way in the late 60s and that kind of thing and and there wasn't sort of internet then but it was just a an extreme cultural change. And it was a kind of pride and it was a kind of different thinking. But the thinking was also based on the Vietnam War and the ecological and the ecological crisis, the crisis in terms of uh, racism and sexism. I mean, I think what people realized was that maybe that they didn't see in the 50s or maybe wasn't there was that the world was really messed up. And it was really these older generations fault, you know, and so the idea was, we need to try something different, you know, we can make the world better, a better place. I was so fortunate to teach high school art, and to learn so much from my students. And I really believed in that back and forth, like I was learning as much from them about thinking, about music, about the way, just, you know, just kind of getting inspired by their energy. So I realized that many people my age, and I'm 63 now, like, sort of just kind of grew older in some way. And I think I was fortunate enough to just have that kind of 17 and 18 year old sort of energy around and I think that was really helpful to me because I wasn't dismissing the younger people. And I mean, I have two sons who are, they are 33 and 31 now. And uh, 
So, I, I mean, I learned a lot from them and from raising them. And they've educated me a lot about music and about life and about, you know, so many different things. I think that, I think I've always realized that I wasn't, even when I was a kid, I, I realized I wasn't, wasn't all that smart. I wasn't, but I could recognize a good idea when I saw it. I think that that's kind of helped me because there's so many great ideas out there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's probably the best kind of smart because so much of the problem seems to be people's sort of incuriosity or disinterest yeah. in what a good yeah. idea is and just yeah. kind of following whatever, whatever is handed to them. Yeah. Which, yeah. Thinking back to the climate change issue, when you were bringing up the sorts of things we can do individually and thinking about corporations and the sort of powerlessness we might have individually over those sorts of things. One thing that I found to be really interesting is the way that BP, for example, will give put out an app that's a carbon footprint tracker to <laughs> mm-hmm. help you reduce your carbon footprint mm-hmm. while their mm-hmm. BP oh my goodness is yeah. <laughs> destroying yeah. so much of the environment single-handedly. Do you feel when you look at when you think about your students, obviously former students, when you think about your children and upcoming generations, do you do you feel optimistic about our <laughs> about their chances of overcoming a machine like that? I mean, that's just, it's so sinister and big. And Well, I certainly don't feel optimistic. I know that life is going to be a struggle. You know, as it gets warmer, as there's more migration, as there's more economic uncertainty and collapse, the secret will really be to be kind of resilient and flexible and adaptable and to gain as many kind of different kind of skills as you can. I'm, I would say that, well, I'm certainly more pessimistic in the sense that I've, I just read a great book called Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, where he, he kind of creates this sort of uh, a way through financial and personal and social movements and various kinds of uh, governmental organizations and, uh, you know, sort of personal movements that people can kind of reduce the most horrible aspects of what's to come. And, you know, it's a little bit sort of more optimistic at the end but I would say that it's just going to be very challenging. And this is what bothers me at least once a week, kind of falling into this kind of despair. I mean, everybody will say, don't despair. That's not a good emotion to have. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's certainly um, a reality. I kind of knew when I was getting very, very political in my early 20s that I mean, I could see how kind of terrible things were, you know, in the, you know, in in the 80s. And the only thing that helped was doing something, whether it was making flyers or going to this or that or coming to some meeting or kind of getting involved in something. And even now, when I have these very specific goals, that's what helps me. And because it's, 
I mean, obviously, it's really something where we don't have time for the evolutionary change that will happen. People will just have, there will be so many adaptions that people are going to have to make. It's scary, but it's not like you can focus on it all the time. There's no good in focusing on it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's really just right now and what we can do right now. I'm as interested and intrigued by, I think they call it uh, cli-fi, like climate fiction. I thought that was a really funny name. But in various apocalyptic scenarios, you know, I, I think I'm very interested in that. You know, and uh, I was even uh, reading the other day about the difference between uh, sort of Brave New World or and 1984, you know, these older apocalyptic books, you know, and and how parts of them are becoming true, you know, in the sense of 1984 with the all-seeing, you know, kind of internet and parts of sort of Brave New World and Alice Huxley with this idea of uh, Neil Postman's entertaining ourselves to death, you know, with kind of having so much that we're so totally distracted. I think those are really interesting ideas, things to worry and work against. I just decided, you know, I'm just really going to focus on environmental things. And even to that, I'm going to narrow it just because I don't want to make myself crazy. There's just too much. You don't really want to feel guilty for living. You know, I, I try and have this smaller carbon footprint. You know, I'm a vegan and, you know, kind of try and like live in a way that uh, uses less energy. But when I do those climate footprint things, you know, just because I live here, you know, we, we use more energy than everywhere else in the world. It's uh, yeah. So it's not a simple answer. <laughs> <laughs> when you mentioned enter- entertaining yourselves to death does that have an impact on your art because I have felt as a writer sometimes just this sort of what's the point there's so much content out there I'm exhausted by it so why would I want to like put it in other people's ears or eyes or (laughs) I don't want to be a part of that sort of noise sometimes how do you how, how do you feel about that as an artist I think it's a really good question because I think about that a little bit with writing. And what I realized was that it was really just kind of my fear of rejection a little bit. It is one thing to consider, but I do think that many people have something kind of really good to say. You know, when, when I read really great writing, there's a, uh, there's a group in England called Dark Mountain, and they deal with uh, the grief of climate change. And the writers kind of deal with, you know, being in nature. But, uh, you know, though that, that writing is kind of really overwhelming and kind of wonderful to me. There, there is that sense of inspiration. There is that sense that I do have a, a place I mean, that's always my fear. There's no place for me. Oh, no, there's no parking place for me. There's no place for me in this world. But I do think that in terms of art, that there is, I have sort of maybe carved out a little niche for myself. It certainly is not going to compete 
compete with Netflix and Hulu and HBO streaming. And that is an issue, you know, that in many ways, art, visual art really can't quite compete in that way. And so maybe I don't really want to compete in that way. I don't have an answer for you, really, because, I mean, I certainly will watch movies on Netflix, but I, I, mean, I mean, I get so wrapped up in great novels and in really interesting books that kind of make life meaningful to me. Maybe some of what I do makes life meaningful for other people. So. Do you have a favorite novel? I wouldn't say a favorite novel. I was so impressed with Ministry for the Future, but I really like the writings of Margaret Atwood, this other, this Austrian writer, Peter Hanke. I love him. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've read most of his stuff. And, you know, even when he had that, you know, it's it's kind of a, people aren't that simple. You know, his defense of Slobodan Milosevic was this terrible situation. And it's, it's hard for me to understand exactly. There's a sense in the negative sense of uh, soil, you know, in his defense of his homeland or his soil that may have corrupted his political intelligence. He's just so absolutely thrilling to me. And David Mitchell, the English writer uh, who wrote Cloud Atlas and wrote a number of other things, is just really terrific. Anthony Doerr, that I, I just read Cloud Cuckoo Land, and I think that's probably one of my favorite books of the year. So there's, um, I do like to read fiction, uh, you know, kind of balance it with nonfiction, because there's just, there's a lot of interesting sort of ways of looking at the environment. Aldo Leopold is an environmental writer who's so poetic, you know, from like the 50s and 40s, that kind of thing, kind of before Rachel Carson. So there's, I guess I have more time now because I retired into June of 2019. So I have more time to just kind of do some of the reading that I that I want to do. If I don't get caught up every other day, I'll get caught up in reading the New York Times and the Philadelphia Inquirer. And then I've just wasted my morning (laughs) it's just gone but uh but uh yeah so there's a there's a there's a lot of good um inspiring writers out there who are and and people like peter peter honka are doing just really interesting sort of almost experimental things the way he connects with place is just so inspiring to me. And I think about that sense of placeness. That's what I was trying to write about in my artist statement. The way that if you live somewhere for a while, maybe you can communicate that sense of place. I look a lot at the paintings of Charles Birchfield and the way his watercolors kind of convey this singing quality of nature. And it's very much about place and I read his journals about sort of wandering through the fields. And maybe that was a time when you could do that. But um, there's that sense of place that I feel certain writers and artists can kind of really uh, convey. Yeah, Hanka does that beautifully. I was introduced to his stuff in grad school and just the lines between genre, like the the poetry of the prose and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah 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 i mean each sentence in some way is kind of can be kind of amazing to me yeah one thing that you mentioned well when you mentioned margaret atwood i 
immediately thought of your suits on your website mm-hmm. and the sort of, I don't want to say prescience because the years were, it was early, early aughts, right? That you yeah, created yeah, those. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like it was so long ago, but when you right. reading about it, it, it's very, it could have been written yesterday. And I think the zeitgeist wasn't to where you were yet in terms of how we look at corporations and patriarchy, especially when we're talking about patriarchy. I don't feel like that was a word that was in the vernacular of everyday people the way that it is now until Mm -hmm. the past probably three or four years. One quote that I I wrote down that you said, uh, that which lies buried in the male stereotypes of, of our culture, the naked and sexual the raw, ferocious anger, the loneliness and alienation and the emptiness, which spawns endless greed. I thought that was, for one, beautifully written, (laughs) beautifully said, but also it maybe when looking at the work created a sense of empathy and compassion that I don't normally even have for the sort of evil of our time that, that does create these, you know, this problem of corporate greed and this you know, not individual men, male, but the the sort of patriarchal world that we're in. So I really appreciated that about the work that it was an unexpected empathy that came out of it while having these sort of grotesque caricatures of, of what these these characters are. So I appreciated that about it. I was, um, well, I was wondering if that was part of your intention and if you see that as part of the route towards healing, if there is a route towards healing, if, if there's a way to sort of integrate that alienated, isolated emotion. I mean, it was certainly the, there's kind of a, a depiction and a sympathy. I mean, they were on these male business suits and I was trying to describe the horrors and the wounds that happened to men. I feel like, you know, in some ways I looked at some of the uh, and was very interested in some of the early, quote, men's movement writers like Robert Bly and that kind of thing. And uh, I think they were very, very helpful. I don't think that there's been the kind of really push in terms of like feminism has really been able to help women deal with the wounds and the cultural stereotypes that have just uh, wreaked havoc on, you know, men and, and, and women. Certainly uh, I have the uh, advantage of having a very strong wife who's smarter than me, who's pointed out a lot of these things in me. And so that while I'm saying that these are for men, I can kind of see things in myself and, you know, and I can work them out psychologically, you know, in terms of my father and his father and just the way that essentially capitalism has kind of destroyed that sense of self, that sense of pride, that sense of integrity and uh, wholeness, you know, in the sense of, well, we can sell you something then, you know. It was certainly intentional with the work. I do feel like, you know, certainly I can see in in many younger men, like some of my students or with my sons, they are, they're not, I mean, they're just a little more enlightened, certainly, than I was uh, as a younger person, uh, even though it was kind of the beginnings of feminism and people were 
teaching me things and I was reading a lot about sort of patriarchy stuff. I just couldn't see it yet in myself. I think it's going to take a while because there's this incredible reaction now, you know, like in other words, that for want of a better term, Trumpism has kind of encouraged immensely and brought out to the surface, which is this kind of uh, anti-enlightenment or whatever. It's it's this kind of uh, anti-woman kind of thing. And it, and it, and it's really, uh, just so incredibly damaging. I do think things are a little better than they certainly were. Even, you know, I I do think society is moving slowly, but I don't think that, I think as as long as you have this kind of rapacious capitalist system, you're going to have damage to people, both men and women. And uh, I can kind of understand the damage that it has to men and it's uh it's sad and it's hard for them to see if we were in a better economic situation there would be uh healthier people growing up yeah it's something that is very slow and changing i couldn't agree more i think it's all sort of crystallized where everything goes back to capitalism and mm-hmm. you know every route you try to take will focus on the environment or what's happening politically and all these things. And it just kind of goes back to like, well, it's all to feed this, this one beast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Which is a daunting task to say, well, how could we reshape the whole world? Okay. So our, our website, Raven rabbit Ram, obviously big fans of Raven. So (laughs) I was wondering with, uh, just the whole, your experience with Corvitz, mm-hmm. what you love about them in terms of character, like beauty wise. I mean, I can see in your art, mm-hmm. the respect that you have for them and just what cool animals they are, but interacting with them. I haven't spent a lot of time. Like I I love Ravens from the sort of mythological standpoint. Um, mm-hmm. I like Hugin and Mugen and the way that they're kind of these creatures that we think of as going through liminal space and between worlds but i I have never really like hung out with a crow (laughs) strangely enough i was so happy this morning uh there's a few crows that had been coming to the front trees here for months uh and i would go out and throw peanuts on the street and they would eat them and we had this good kind of relationship there and then they left for a while I think maybe the guy got his trees pruned or whatever, but they were, they were back this morning. And I was thinking of them. I kind of called them affectionately Fred and Ethel. It was, it was nice to see them, you know, so the crows are in the front here. They're in the, they're in the back. I just, you know, like the more I, the more I've read about them, the more I kind of imagine what their lives are like, you know, and I've kind of read these documentaries, read these books, read all these poems and kind of studied them. Uh, There's this sense of history. There's the way that they're almost with crows. They're very related to um, uh, humans in the sense that they're always kind of uh, nearby in, in, in some way. Ravens are a little more in the woods. And I hadn't, hadn't seen a raven for a while until I like last, last year I took a trip out to western Pennsylvania, out to like Morgantown and that kind of thing. And uh, 
saw some ravens and I was like, oh my goodness. And I knew it because they're bigger, but, they're, but their cry, their, their, their call is very, very different sounding. And so that was very, very exciting to me. I mean, there's so many interesting things. Even I was uh, reading books about sort of ravens as tricksters and uh, these shaman who transform into ravens and that kind of thing. Uh, there's, there's such a nice kind of history I think that they, they've been maligned as as beings. They're so smart. They're kind of so social. And they're kind of the loudest characters around here. They seem to want to kind of let themselves be known. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it's like this issue of like, oh, they're my spirit animal or something. Because I really don't. That's something that I've read about, but I've never experienced in, in any way. I, I would like to have a closer relationship and so sometimes the artwork is about trying to establish that it's about a way of studying it's you know almost when you draw something you start to consider it in a in a way and so there's all these readings and and then kind of creating stories about how people think about crows or to think what would the world look like to a crow and so kind of putting myself in that in that place you know so there's 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 so much there it's so rich both mythologically you know and historically and then just in this sort of the daily life you know and so sometimes I try to uh for a while I was trying to like listen to the number of their calls like is it three four five or you know in terms of like there's so there's different things and there's people who really study them and that's that's kind of amazing to me I'm not a uh, I'm not an ornithologist, but I'm uh, I kind of see them in some way, as I might have said, as as a kind of stand-in for a lot of uh, like non-human intelligence in nature. Uh, that these are really smart characters. We don't even know how smart they are, but we presume that we're just the most intelligent beings. By kind of center staging crows, I'm trying to kind of decenter humans a little bit. That's a lovely mission. And I think it reminds me of a friend who wrote a short story about crows on the basis of how they remember people and they'll, you know, mm-hmm. they can hold a grudge, which mm-hmm. I think is yeah, yeah. <laughs> just adorable. <laughs> yeah. Not adorable. Mm-hmm. That's very condescending to the crows, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, that's cool. No, it, it, it's truly remarkable uh, when, you know, they do all these kind of studies uh, and different tests, they test them. Oh, and it do this, thing and this and this and this to get the to get the food or how some of them use tools you know or the kind of uh burial funeral rites that not not burial but funeral rites they have for one of their own or that kind of thing or that sort of the way that they kind of all sleep together that sort of thing it's 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 a very interesting situation yeah it's amazing the difference that just like thumbs Essentially, just thumbs is the difference Mm -hmm. between Mm -hmm. us and so many animals that could, Mm -hmm. for all we know, be much, much smarter than us. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) My last question. So our podcast is called It's Always Saturn. And that's because I just have this phenomenon of seeing the symbol for Saturn everywhere all the time. (laughs) So Saturn, the planet, represents 
Kronos, the god of time, and and in like symbolically represents things like limitation, boundaries, mm-hmm. structure, regulation. So, um, my last question is just how how does limitation and boundaries uh, how does that affect your work? And hopefully, are there positive ways that you incorporate? Mm-hmm. Uh, that that sort of restrictive quality in your work. Yeah, I, I I think that I really like that, and and in some ways, even in the beginnings of the sort of COVID situation, and and like with this whole uh, drawing book, you know, the idea that all of a sudden, as a painter, I'm just going to work in pencil for the next six to eight months. I'm just going to work in black and white. And it was so interesting to me because pencil, all of a sudden, it became like, oh, now I'm telling stories. You know, now it, 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 it's, it's so much easier. And in some ways, it was a little bit more maybe illustrative. I really liked how, uh, how that changed thinking for me, that it was less about the sort of the joy of applying color and more about almost ideas in some way. And I thought that that was just, isn't this, you know, I, I really like that in a sense of being interested. So I, I certainly think about that. I, I think about even with limitations, like when I'm working with natural pigments, certain pigments I don't use because they're toxic or they're, you know, I think I, I use a little bit of ultramarine blue, but that's not toxic, but it's, it's not a natural pigment. But I like that it limits my palette. I really like that because it it forces me to do more and to go places I wouldn't go and to try different things and different color tonalities that I wouldn't even think of. Uh, so I, I think that that's really been very, very valuable to me. And then there's just the idea of, of being outside for a certain amount of time, that there's just limits, like I'm just going to you know have my stuff that I have outside. And I have my palettes and I have, you know, but I'm not going to have a whole lot of stuff. I'm just going to have this board here. or I'm just going to, you know, just be working with ink. You know, sometimes I just work with ink. And I love those things where it was just like, I'm not even going to use any water. I'm just going to do dry brush ink, you know, so that the the limitations have been, um, they've been really helpful to me. They take me to places I wouldn't normally go. And so I think that that's really been the best thing. 